Welcome to the 40th episode of the WASB Connection Podcast. Dr. Depesh Navsaria, a Madison pediatrician, says that what happens to a child in their first few years of life can have profound consequences in their school years and beyond. There's more and more science out there telling us that if we get it right early on, then we're actually going to be more effective and spend less money to end up with better results down the road. Dr. Navsaria is the keynote to the 2023 Summer Leadership Institute, a two-day conference held in Green Bay this July 14th and 15th that will explore school safety, student wellness, and the work of school boards. In a preview of his July keynote, we'll talk today about what matters in those early years of life. The single most important factor in child health, as he'll explain, is loving relationships. What we've learned is that when you look at the early years of life, the single most important driver of all the things I just mentioned is the strength and power of loving, safe, stable, nurturing relationships with the adults in the environment. And what we've found is that if you're going to pick out one factor that makes the biggest difference in terms of those outcomes, it's having those safe, stable, nurturing relationships that these allow kids to feel connected with others. It allows them to feel cared for and it allows them to feel competent as a developing being in the world. We also talk about the role of stress when it's good, when it's bad, and how it can affect a child's behavior in school. For example, when educators see erratic behavior, they may not understand the experiences that help to explain that behavior. This can lead adults to ask the wrong questions to explain why children do what they do, he says. And we're sitting here wondering, what's wrong with this kid? And that's the wrong question. The question should be, what happened to this kid? As always, if you enjoy this podcast, please share it with one other person. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Nafsaria. It's great to have you. Thanks. Great to be here. So could you tell us a bit about yourself, your background, how you came to focus on early childhood health? I'm a pediatrician uh, here in Madison, Wisconsin. I uh, grew up out east in New York City and bounced up and down the East Coast before ending up in the Midwest for the last couple of decades or so. As I mentioned, I'm a pediatrician, but I also have a master's degree in children's librarianship and in public health. And uh, it's really great to have a career where I'm able to actually pull all those different things together and focus on early childhood. Why early childhood? Because early matters. What we do early, and by early, I'm talking birth to age five, you know, it makes a real big difference in terms of the whole life course of individuals. There's more and more science out there telling us that if we get it right early on, then we're actually going to be more effective and spend less money to end up with better results down the road. So let's get started right there then. You mentioned those years birth to five or so have really profound implications for lifelong health. How do we know this? What studies or investigations have we done to show that this is the case? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and arguably there's hundreds or even thousands of studies that have looked at this from a, a variety of uh, angles. Um, they look at it from a psychosocial perspective, right, from mental health and well-being. They look at it from a cognitive perspective in terms of, you know, your your ability to um, understand and think about the world around you. And also from physical health, uh, believe it or not, um, all these different angles have been looked at. What we've learned is that when you look at the early years of life, the single most important driver of all the things I just mentioned is the strength and power of loving 
safe, stable, nurturing relationships with the adults in the environment. And what we've found is that if you're going to pick out one factor that makes the biggest difference in terms of those outcomes, it's having those safe, stable, nurturing relationships that these allow kids to feel connected with others. It allows them to feel cared for and it allows them to feel competent as a developing being in the world. And there's all sorts of ways we can measure this. They can measure it in terms of long-term outcomes, but we could also measure it in terms of things like stress hormone levels, the levels of something we call cortisol. And we can also measure it in even the epigenetic changes. Epigenetics is the science of not how we change genes, but how we modify how they're expressed. And we see different types of genes turn on and off depending on the surroundings that children are exposed to. So in that example, both your nurture, how you're raised, and then your genetic code itself can be changed by your experiences. Well, not so much the genetic code itself, because your your genes are your genes, but it's whether those genes are turned on or off is, is really the difference. So for example, all of us, you and I both have genes that help us, you know, take in the world around us and learn and all those sorts of things. But we also have genes that help us in periods of scarcity, right? If they're looking for food or safety or things like that. So hopefully you and I both have the genes for learning about the world around us that have been turned on for a long time. And hopefully we don't have to have the genes turned on that we need for if we're wondering where our next meal is going to come from and so on. We both have these genes. It's just whether they're actually being actively expressed or not. You've spoken about this concept, toxic stress. You call it the key intergenerational transmitter of disparities in health and society. And it sounds pretty important. So I'm hoping you can talk about what this is. Yeah. So toxic stress, which we've been talking about in pediatrics for at least the last 10 years. And I think the the term probably predates it by just a little bit. But it's this notion that when young children are exposed to significant stressors, that it does things to their physiology that is not good for them long term. So let me draw an analogy here. One, I don't want anyone to think that, you know, all stress is bad. We actually need small stressors in order for us to learn and adapt and gain new skills. We actually call it positive stress because it is useful and essential. So small amounts of stress are actually a good thing. It's arguably why we, you know, give people exams and, and things like that, you know. Then we have tolerable stress. These are more significant and serious stressors, but usually they're temporary and they're buffered by those safe, stable, nurturing relationships, right? They help you deal with that. And it's tolerable, right? It's not fantastic, but it'll be fine. Toxic stress might be the same type of stressor, but it's often prolonged. It's there for a much longer period of time, and there's few or no of those nurturing relationships to help buffer. And what happens is that a young child who doesn't have those buffering relationships in their life, what happens is that they're using the stress response system. It's kind of like if you're walking along in the woods and you suddenly run into a really hungry bear right? It's woken up from its winter hibernation. It is looking to eat. And this bear looks at you and says, mm, lunch, right? And you have this, you and I and all of us have this built-in response system that says, uh-oh, red alert. And we run or we hide or we fight or whatever we need to save ourselves. And the problem is 
that's great when you run into that hungry bear. It's not so great as an everyday way of managing the world around you. Because again, if that young child keeps getting hit by those stressors. They're hitting that red alert button in their brain over and over and over. They pump out these stress hormones. It actually can cause some changes in their brain in terms of the parts of the brain that are there for scarcity and safety and all that become larger because they keep having to be activated. And the parts of their brain that would be thinking about long-term or their future or reasoning or learning or love or all those, those get tamped down because, again, the most important thing is survival. So toxic stress ends up causing all these things in what we see in schools, in clinics, in all sorts of places, is a child who seems to outwardly for no reason fly off the handle or act unusually like running screaming down the hall right when quote unquote nothing happened and probably what happened was they saw a little behavior that in their environment may mean uh oh something bad's about to happen mm. right and it sets off this red alert system and we're sitting here wondering what's wrong with this kid and that's the wrong question the question should be what happened to this kid right? How does this make sense when you put it in the context of the child's life? Now, I'm not saying it's okay. You don't just let a kid run off, you know, out of the classroom down the hall. You got to keep them safe and maintain order and, you know, and all those sorts of things, right? But the key point here is that there's a loop that's happened because of what they were exposed to. So that is what happens with toxic stress. And it causes lifelong issues and all these things we're talking about, about behavior and learning and even in physical health. You used the word intergenerational to suggest that one generation's toxic stress can be passed even if it can't be exactly genetic. Yeah, it's not genetic at all, actually. It can be broken within a single generation if the right circumstances happen. But what happens is if your family, if your parents, say, don't know how to cope well with a situation, how would you learn that, right? So I think of, for example, the example of first-generation college students, right? They are running into some issue, you know, they broke their leg and they can barely make it to class. And, you know, if this was my kid, I would be saying, okay, you need to call the, the Disability Resource Center and get some documentation and they'll make accommodations and they'll figure out you can attend virtually or they'll drive you to class or, you know, whatever needs to happen, right? If you're a first-gen college student, you might not know that you can even ask for that. And if you ask your parents, they might just look at you like, I don't know, we, we never dealt with this. So you're not able to problem solve in the same way because you don't have that social capital and that prior experience to be able to do that. And you noted that maybe the same event could be either tolerable or toxic depending on the surroundings. Could you give an example of what that might look like? Yeah. So for example, let's say that you have a child who, I don't know, gets assaulted by someone, right? Assaulted and they come home. Okay. First thing they're getting concerned parents, you know, oh my goodness, let's get you checked out. Okay. And they're, they're immediately like they're calling the next day. We need to get them in to talk to a psychologist. We need to figure out how do we help them process this event, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like all the resources are there. There's clearly supportive relationships. And what are the steps we can take to make sure that this assault doesn't happen again. Contrast that to someone where, yeah, maybe they're being threatened on a regular basis. Maybe they're even being physically attacked on a regular basis. Maybe no one knows how to problem solve. No one knows how to get the resources, you know, for their mental health, etc. This thing that could have been tolerable has now become toxic because those relationships aren't there and they're unable to provide that kind of support. And, and I want to be really clear. 
this is not about blaming the parents. This isn't about saying, well, if they just did their job, they'd be fine. No, 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 no. This is recognizing that not everyone has access to the same resources and the same ways of thinking and the same privilege sometimes to be able to kind of handle some of these things. I thought it was interesting that you started by noting that some stress can be positive. And, you know, we hear about an urge to clear away all stress from a child, as in the case of a helicopter or a snowplow, right? That can leave a child maybe unprepared. So the message shouldn't be stress is bad. You should protect children from stress. Yep. You know, if if you don't have any kind of stressor in your environment, there's absolutely no incentive to change. So why would you, you know, so you don't learn new skills. So yeah, you're actually, in a sense, you're slightly harming your child when you don't have those opportunities for them to cope. You know, I have two college-aged kids myself, and it's always that balancing act of, okay, I need you to adult on a few things. I need you to take, you know, uh, responsibility for handling X or calling about Y or whatever. And then there's some things where it's like, okay, yeah, that's a little overwhelming, and I wouldn't expect you here. Let me either deal with this for you or let's deal with this together so that you learn how to, you know, handle this in the future. Sure. Earlier, you were talking about how important it is to have those strong relationships. And you're going to talk about that at the conference under the the umbrella of relational health. And I'm wondering, what does this term mean? And why is it so important? Yeah, it's an interesting phrasing because I think it's not completely obvious what it means when you hear the term relational health. But simply put, it's the health of relationships. What are the relationships like in your environment and who can you count on? You know, all those sorts of things. So when the original American Academy of Pediatrics kind of policy statement on toxic stress came out in 2012, I mean, it was landmark, right? It really just synthesized and pulled together so much of this stuff in a way that we hadn't completely articulated in the field of pediatrics. So absolutely incredible work. But the authors realized that there was something missing, much like we do in healthcare all the time. (laughs) It was very deficit oriented, right? Like, where's the problem? What's the diagnosis? What isn't there? You know, all this stuff, adversity, toxic stress, right? It's kind of kind of depressing, right? It didn't really talk well about solutions. So when they did the second edition of the statement, which came out just in uh, 2021, they said toxic stress is critical because it helps us understand how so many of the disparities in our society are rooted in a shared biology, but divergent opportunities, you know, that are out there. But relational health defines the solution. It's about individual, family, and community, right? This is not just, again, about the individual or their family, but community capacities to support one another, to buffer things, and to allow children and society, really, to thrive and to flourish. That when we can see that there's good, strong, nurturing relationships present, we, one, we can promote that where it's already present. Two, if we see it being challenged or fraying, we can identify and address those issues. Or three, If it's really gone, you know, down the tubes, okay, what can we do to repair that, right? Recognizing that that's the work that needs to happen over and over and over again. Because again, if you're looking at the life course of children over their entire lives, all the way through adulthood, it's going to be having strong relational health. And I I do want to point out, this isn't actually like a brand new came out two years ago concept. The phrase relational health, I think, you know, is 
is relatively recent, but the conceptual frame has been around for a while. The famed psychologist Yuri Bronfenbrenner, who came up with social ecological theory and all that, he was once asked, so what does the research say is really the most important thing? You know, what? Well, tell us from all your decades of work and in your career, tell us. And he basically said, I'm paraphrasing somewhat, but he said, basically every child needs an adult who's just crazy about them. And they're like, is that really what the research says? And he's like, yeah, pretty much. And I'm going to make one little edit to his amazing words, which is, you know, every child needs an adult who's crazy about them and can show it. Mm -hmm. Because that's the other thing we need to recognize that sometimes the adults, they may have undiagnosed or untreated mental health physical health concerns. They may be working three jobs and they're not home because that's the only way they're able to make rent, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not just about, oh, if you love, that's all you need. Well, yes, love, but let's not make it hard either. <laughs> let's, you know, let's let people show the love and the support that they know how to do and want to do and can't because of other circumstances. We have to recognize that there's a community and societal obligation here as well that isn't always being addressed. So looking at the problem from this frame, you haven't chosen an easy way to promote public health. There's no, of course, pill or doctor's visit that you can do. So what are some solutions? What can we do? What can schools do? This is a big question, though. If this is the problem, I'm sure you've heard, how does this scale, right? I'm sure that's a question you've probably gotten a lot. Yeah, yeah. So I think sometimes our approach to problems is thinking that it's an information gap right? That if we simply give families or individual kids like, you know, information, you know, like school is important, study hard or eat right. Okay. That's all. Once we do that, we can pat ourselves on the back and say, Hey, it's done. Um, the problem is there might be information gaps out there, but that's sort of relatively easy to address. Mm -hmm. There's another gap though. It's a skills gap. How am I supposed to study hard? I, I don't understand what, what sort of study skills do I need? Or how am I supposed to cook healthy food? I don't actually know how no one's ever shown me, you know, and I don't know how to do this. And what are these weird vegetables that I've never heard of, you know, or whatever, right? And there can also be a bigger gap, even more, which is a confidence gap, right? Oh, I'm not going to do well in school, you know, my, or as a parent might think, my kid's not going to go do well in school. I never did. They're going to turn out just like me, aren't they? Right. So how do you address that? It's through modeling and coaching and reinforcement, right? So one, when you catch a child or a family or whoever doing things well, for crying out loud, tell them so, right? I started at the end of all of my checkups when I was in primary care, saying to family, just looking at them at the end and say, I think you're doing a great job with them, right? And people just beamed. They loved it, right? And look, I'm a pediatrician. Allegedly, I know what I'm doing. And I, and I loved hearing that when I took my own kids in, right? Yeah. You know, so start with that. But then where there are challenges, right? How can we problem solve? How can we model things for you? How can you coach or just say, no, 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 you're right. You actually have that absolutely right. You're not wrong, right? Let's build that confidence up. That all contributes to relational health. I want to point out, it's not just the relational health between the child and their parents or caregivers. There's also the relationship and the relational health between us professionals and the family, right? So if 
we see high turnover. We're seeing that a lot in healthcare. I know it happens in schools too. If people are like, yeah, this is the fourth school psychologist I've been through, or my child doesn't have the same assistant principal for more than a year at a time. Primary care doc has changed five times in the last five years because they keep moving on, right? Mm -hmm. It's hard to build relational health when you don't have stability and consistency, or if those professionals are so overwhelmed that they don't have time to devote to you because this is too much work. So as we look at all of these things, right, asking ourselves, are we doing things that are building relational health or are we doing things that actually create threats to it? And I think we can think about that, whether we're in healthcare or education or any other kind of work, that relational health exists not just within families, but also between people in the professional roles they have. Let's say I'm a school board member or administrator, and I might get children in my district when they turn four. If they turn four in the fall, they might be in a poor K program. But before that, maybe not much, not at all, perhaps. What can I learn about this concept and what can I change about what I do? Mm -hmm. So I'd say the first thing is invest in your people, right? Make sure your staff feels that you have their back, that you care about them doing these sorts of things, about really attending to the needs of children and families. That's another relational health, right, between leadership and the folks who are, you know, doing the frontline work, um, you know, do they feel like that this is a safe, stable and nurturing relationship they have with you? I mean, you can apply this as, as well there. Make sure that they have the resources that they need, including referrals, right? Um, help facilitate, hey, if they're seeing signs of significant mental health or other stressors like housing or food or whatever, right? Do we have those outside resources? Schools are not always going to be able to address all these things in-house. I recognize public schools do a lot in that arena, but sometimes you need to refer out, well, how do we make that as easy as possible? And how do we help everyone understand, right, that a child who's struggling, that we should be treating this not as a bad child, child who doesn't know right from wrong or whatever, but treating it as a symptom of something else. I don't know if you've watched the TV show Ted Lasso. I love it, but there's a line in there that that I, I use in teaching my classes and all. Don't be judgmental, be curious, right? If we can have people really say, hmm, wow, this kid was really a challenge and let's be curious about that. What might be going on here? How can we figure this out? Because this kid doesn't need us being judgy. This kid needs us being curious about how can we best help you and really get to the bottom of this and get get the right resources for you and your family. It might also be a little bit frightening to think that a child's experiences that young are locked in is a too strong a word perhaps, but are somewhat determinative of their life course. But it sounds like a child even after five can benefit from some of these concepts. Yes, I'm, I'm going to say this really clearly. As much as I go on and others go on about the first thousand days, the early months of life, et cetera, et cetera, brains are built over time. We always, always, always have the opportunity for more help, remediation, changing course. And this goes on throughout the life course. You could do it when you're 50 if you need to, right? Now, it's a lot harder. It takes a lot more resources. Um, the outcomes are going to be harder to get great outcomes on. But, 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 I'm just going to say again, we always have that opportunity. So when you're looking at a kid who's four or five, yeah, this would have been a lot easier to deal with four years earlier, but that opportunity is still there. You don't just give up from that. You had to work with the children that you have rather than the children you wish you had sometimes. 
Sure, sure. And I also wanted to note that you have your own podcast, of course. And could you tell listeners yeah. a little bit about it? Yeah. And actually, I have three. Let me tell you about all three. <laughs> so um, the first one is the Reach Out and Read podcast. Um, so I'm medical director of Reach Out and Read Wisconsin, which is a program that uh, works on implementing early literacy, modeling, coaching advice as part of the regular checkups that kids get in the first five years of life. We'll be starting our fourth season this summer. And we have the time you and I are recording this. We have 75 episodes out. We talk about children's books, shared reading, parent all sorts of child issues. So we go beyond just the reading stuff. It's great fun. Lots of guests, a lot of wonderful things to talk about. So that's available at reachoutandread.org slash podcast. We have the Wisconsin chapter of the American Academy of Pediatrics. We did a short run of 12-ish episodes on primary care, designed for primary care docs on mental health issues. Uh, we talked to psychologists and psychiatrists. So if there's any school psychologists or other mental health professionals out there that are interested in hearing about pediatric mental health, that limited run podcast is uh, still out there on wiaap.org. And I think it's slash podcast, but you can find it at the main page. And then the other ongoing podcast we have is called Teachers, Toddlers, and Tissues. And it's uh, a production of our early childhood health consultation program here in Wisconsin that we launched a couple of years ago. And uh, we're just a couple of episodes into that, but it is a preschool teacher and myself as co-hosts. And we are planning on having some guests on over time. And we talk about varying health issues that I think for any of your listeners who are involved in 4K classrooms and so on, that definitely overlaps with age range for that podcast, recognizing that unlike the K-12 system, many early childhood educators don't have access to school nurses and all. So we're trying to help them with all that. Obviously, there's intersections between all three of these things, but they're all different in their own way. And that one is at echc.wisc.edu slash podcast. Great. Yeah, we'll include a link to all three podcasts in the show notes too. So if folks want to check them out, they can find them there. What have I not asked about or did you want to elaborate on that uh, you think is worth saying? Yeah, the thing that I'll say here is that I think a lot of folks think, oh, relationships, isn't that special, right? And the thing is, there's a deep science behind all this. There's so much data out there. There's so many measurable things, you know, the genes and the cortisol levels and functional MRIs, brain scans, you know, all that sort of stuff, that there's a deep science showing how absolutely incredible and critical all this is. And if we can focus on that strong relational health, that is where we're going to see the best bang for our buck. And again, when I say early, I mean early. I'm talking birth to age five for sure. Because sometimes I think from a K through 12 perspective, early is four, you know. So I want to highlight that school districts may need to consider saying, hmm, what could we do? in the zero to four space in our community, maybe at least in a supportive or other way to help, you know, change trajectories for the better before they even get formally to the K through 12 system. So I think those are the two big things. All right. Well, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. If you're a Wisconsin school board member or staff member who'd like to learn more on this topic, please join Dr. Navsaria at the Summer Leadership Institute in Green Bay this July. Registration is now open at wasb.org. Next month, we'll talk about how Wisconsin students are taking the lead in energy conservation. Mm -hmm.